Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, uh, the 19th of uh, January. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Taoiseach's proposal of uh, deploying more Gardaí to the 10 regions where most migrants live is the wrong approach, according to the Garda Representative Association. Brendan O'Connor is uh, the president of uh, the GRA and on the line with us this morning. And a very good morning to you, Brendan, and thank you. Indeed, for joining us on the programme today. Now, many migrants come here seeking international protection from brutal regimes and countries where they face torture, persecution and death. But the unfortunate truth is that when they arrive here, they need to be protected from racist verbal abuse, intimidation, harassment, possible assault and death, as it is not uncommon now for someone to burn down or try to burn down or threaten to burn down the place that they're going to live in. So how do we protect vulnerable immigrants, do you think, from these dangers? Well, you know, Michael, the, the, the challenges that you alluded to there that have been faced obviously require um, a proper policing plan and proper guard intervention. So, you know, yet again, we see knee-jerk reaction announcements from the uh, politicians that we're just going to deploy more Gardaí or extra Gardaí. There are no more Gardaí, there are no extra Gardaí. As we all know, we have a thousand less members than the government planned to have by 2021, uh, now three years later. And uh, certainly there's been also conversations about deploying Garda reserves. Uh, so I don't know where they're going to get the Garda reserves because that their numbers are depleted even more than the, front, than the regular uh, full-time service. So, um, again, these announcements are made, but no mm. consultation with us and no, 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 no understanding among the members that I represent who are possibly going to be deployed. And, again, no one knows where these members are going to come from. OK, but if immigrants move into an area, is it inevitable that trouble will follow? Well, even if it's not trouble, I mean, it's, it's been highlighted in relation to other services like education and health. It's just uh, when you, you place a significant increase in population uh, which which happens, you need the, the additional public services. But certainly, a lot of the centres and a lot of the incidents. I know some of them mean in Dublin, but have occurred in rural Ireland, and unfortunately, rural Ireland is where we see a serious lack of guard presence and guard visibility. So, look, it's just another challenge facing the organisations, another pressure on our members. But um, I know political announcements that don't really seem to have any 
any basis mm. in what any any plan that we've seen have sight of or any understanding our members have in relation to mm. what's, what's going to happen. Okay, but what's the alternative? Uh, I mean, if you've a couple of hundred people standing outside a building, as has been the case most recently in Ross Grey, uh, objecting to people moving in there and determined it would seem to stop them from moving in there, what's the alternative other than to deploy the police to protect those people? Well, I think I, I, I think there seems to be some wires crossing. We've never said there's a problem with deploying police. All we said is where the police going to come from. We acknowledge mm. the need to and to, to to preserve law and order and protect every citizen and every every person seeking asylum. So absolutely, there's no problem that mm. that is what's required. But again, it's just it's just focusing um, attention on the absence and the lack of guardy and and the fact that we are just pulling guards from. Uh, one crisis to the next, a knee-jerk reaction, fire brigade yeah. police, and, and uh, just it's it's a very difficult situation. If we were the full complement of staff, if we had properly trained personnel, but mm. we don't. So, um, just that's all. We're just we're just highlighting the fact that we have a finite number of people that are already over overstretched. We saw the demands placed on the police, Dublin City, which was drawn in from surrounding counties, and now the next crisis seems to be. Um, the current situation with these centres. Yeah, uh, and you can't be in two places at the one time. So what happens when you're deployed to one of uh, these centres? Uh, I'm not sure how many Gardaí were in Ross Grey, but it looked to me, watching it uh, on television, that there were a lot of Gardaí, maybe as many Gardaí as the couple of hundred protesters. I, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, I did read a report uh, of politicians returning to Leinster House uh, on Wednesday of uh, this week. Uh, and there were Gardaí everywhere, a very heavy Garda presence uh, and only about 30 protesters, 30 uh, of uh, these anti-immigrant people uh, protesting uh, for whatever uh, their problem is. Uh, It's an awful drain uh, on Garda resources when, as you say, uh, you're lacking uh, personnel. So what gives under these circumstances, when Gardaí have to go to Leinster House because of that threat or have to go to Ross Cray or wherever it is, what, what's the result of that? Well, the result of that is, Michael, as you said, those Gardaí who, uh, as we said, they're not additional Gardaí. So if you have members, um, you spoke about that operation in Dublin on, on Wednesday. So we had a significant number of personnel deployed there from around the country because there was a VIP visit that were available to be deployed to Leinster House. But realistically, you know, if the Gardaí from Drogheda, from Dundalk, from Navan are deployed into, whether it's the Rosquay as public order units or to Dublin to the police adult, it means that there's less Gardaí. If they're taken off the working units, there's uh, slower response times and less capacity to respond to incidents. It's just a reality. Uh, you have a finite number of people increasing demands for service and the people aren't there. The, the 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 service is going to be impacted. I think that's just that's just basic common sense, and I think they're trying to spin and and say that that's not the case just defies logic. Have we not got the wherewithal to stop a very small group of very angry, hateful, spiteful people from destroying this country? Uh, I suppose that's a that's an ideological conversation to say what, what is what can we do that. Mm, But don't we have laws in place? I mean, don't we have uh, the Equal Status Act, for example? Don't uh, we have uh, laws uh, that would uh, prosecute people for incitement to violence? Uh, Because, I mean, these keyboard warriors are undoubtedly 
uh, inciting uh, people uh, to think one way at least and there is uh, the potential to see the likes of uh, the riots uh, that we saw in Dublin a couple of months ago. Yes, well, I mean, the, the, the whole area of the use of, of computers and, and social media is a challenge for any, every police services as, as this, the, the, just the, the nature of crime evolves and it can be quite complex and resource intensive and indeed requires specialist knowledge to, to, um, to, to collate the evidence and to gather the evidence to prepare prosecutions. But the, the most incidents that we see manifesting themselves as a result of this current um, wave of, of sentiment is I suppose public order and damage to property and stuff like that that Gardaí are dealing with and it's just I suppose it's just been the, the laws have been used in, in a different context so where maybe we'd be used to using public order outside a nightclub where people are being abusive and aggressive we now find ourselves that mm. the, the, the motivation and, and the, the, the environment in which it, it's manifest itself is probably slightly different but mm. uh, very similar challenges you know and it's usually very focused very aggressive very um, people trying to stir up hate and division in our community. So also we think on Gary Corner, our ethos and our ethics are about uh, preserving the peace and that's still our, our main objective. But there are some people who seem to be uh, hell-bent on, on, on stopping there being peace and harmony in our nation. Mm, do the laws uh, uh, allow for Gardaí to take action uh, in relation of defamatory things that are being said on the internet? Uh, look, I wouldn't claim to be uh, an expert mm. on those those things, but I mean, people are uh, people are people are encouraging people to commit offences, and people are yeah. um, engaging in behaviour that's threatening, abusive, yeah. and assaulting. That that can be no offence, but again, not the public order act. There's more intricate legislation there, but that's certainly for uh, the director of public prosecutions and, and mm. for the prosecution services of the state. But it's just crazy. and I mean, I'm asking, quite honestly, I don't know if Gardaí can play a role in this or if politicians need to legislate in some other manner. But it seems just crazy to say that a group of people are moving into a building down the road and we don't want them in our neighbourhood because they're all rapists. And that's the impression that people are giving on the internet. Yeah, and, you know, those... those, those, those comments are usually completely unfounded without any justification and very inflammatory but I mean we see videos there online of people standing videoing Gardy and demanding and you know saying you're doing your job Gard, stop him, search him, ask him for documents you know yeah. uh, I, I saw one day where there was a guard was speaking to someone in a car and this person had a, had a, had a video camera and shoved in the guard's face and look look there's no NCT you do your job you better take that car off and seize the car off and like so it's just very, very challenging, very different environment mm. that we're used to. And the guards are there; they're trying to preserve the peace, trying to protect people. They have to try and enforce the law mm. and deal with these people. So it's just, it's, it's a very difficult, very challenging environment. And can you not arrest some? Can you not arrest somebody like that for interfering in a guard carrying out his functions? Well, you see, we're back down to this. We come yeah. back to, to what we're talking about—the lack of numbers. So, if you mm. only have three or four guardy there, and you have to play, we'll make one arrest. You see, these people can be quite resistful. So, yeah, you have to uh, the, the, the actual um, the logistics of getting that person detained, getting them arrested, removing them from the scene. That's one guard a vehicle at least with two personnel leaving the scene. So now you've got even deplete, more depleted resources than you had there. It was already struggling. So it's not a frustration. Sometimes you hear the public saying there's all the guards aren't doing anything. Now a lot of times you have to follow up and identify the person and issue a summons. But making an arrest is quite a resource intensive 
uh, thing to do and it's maybe tactically of course every situation is different it's not always tactically the most suitable thing to do it's all well and good saying yeah mm, take the mm, troublemaker mm. out of the equation take the troublemaker and two guards and the vehicle out of the equation is the reality so unless mm. you have sufficient numbers of personnel that's where it can get challenging and uh, I suppose at times uh, you'll be calculating that if you take that person out of the equation you could end up having to deal with a, a riotous situation Yes, exactly. And then, you know, people, these people like to be made a martyr off and the victim and, you know, it, it can create. And then you have a standoff, maybe, you know, 20 people around the guard of vehicle trying to prize someone from custody. So often making the arrest can actually escalate the level of conflict, even though some people looking on who don't have an intricate knowledge of police tactics might see it as inaction. But actually, it's a very reason and well thought out judgment has taken to take a particular course of action Alright, um, I, I take it uh, that there be uh, less sight of uh, these people and we'd be less uh, aware of uh, their views and they'd uh, have less ability to gather in any sort of numbers if it wasn't for the internet Yes, that's it. And as I say, the policing environment has changed. The way we communicate, the way people can broadcast or hate, the way they can uh, organise and rally the troops, as I say, and organise these protests at short notice. Again, mm. just to add to the complexity and the challenge for policing of these events. But um, mm. it's, it's certainly we're in a new sphere and it's, it's mm. a very unpleasant, quite toxic, but our members are bearing the brunt of it on the front line and it's, it's certainly not of an course. easy task. Oh, God. Uh, and I, and I, I mean, uh, the, the vile way uh, these people treat other people and speak to other people uh, is really unacceptable, I think, to most decent people. And uh, I think... Uh, there's few people who would want to be in the position of a member of Angarda Shia Khan facing one of these people when they're revved up and uh, bitter uh, and making it well known to you. Uh, but I, I take it that the Gardaí uh, would know the ringleaders and that it's a, a relatively small uh, amount of people uh, who are driving all of this. Uh, would you be able to put a figure on that? Uh, no, look, I wouldn't have access to that sort of information, uh, Michael. And just look, there's two types, mm. types of protests. There's the local yep, ones that have yep. spring up, that are blockades, that are mm. maybe quite peaceful and local guardy would know the people involved. And then there are the more orchestrated people that are involved in uh, really focused and driven. So they'd be subjected to the monitoring and, mm. and surveillance of the state. So that would be all very operational and very confidential. Mm. Uh, but the force as it stands, even with uh, reserve members, if there were reserve members, uh, doesn't uh, have uh, the numbers to be able to police uh, these incidents uh, as a, a way, uh, in a preventative way, to go to areas where there's large numbers of, of immigrants. Is that what you're saying? Well, we're saying, and it's, it's a very it's an established fact, that the Garda Chicana is struggling with a retention and, and recruitment crisis. We don't have the personnel to, to, to provide, we would say, an, an adequate, ordinary day-to-day uh, response policing service to the public because our numbers are so depleted. So now we have this huge challenge, which is very resource intensive, spread across the country, placing a demand to have more and more personnel deployed, and that's just eating. That's just putting more and more strain on an already strained service. So, um, 
you know, unless we address the recruitment and retention, have sufficient numbers to be able to deploy it with the proper equipment, with the proper vehicles, you know, that's that's going to be a challenge in, in, in the short term. Okay. Um, can I ask you for your thoughts, uh, if you wish to share them uh, on uh, that incident uh, yesterday afternoon, quarter past three in the afternoon, a man believed to be an Eastern European man in his 30s has died following an explosion on Little Britain Street. Um, it's very concerning, isn't it? Hey, to be honest, Michael, I'm absolutely no knowledge of the circumstances of that, that incident, and it's it's subject of of a live investigation. So it would be very inappropriate for me to comment. To be honest, okay, can understand that. But thank you indeed for joining us today. That's Brendan O'Connor, who's a president of the Garda Representative Association, the GRA. Michael Reed on LMFM. By the way, if you'd like to make comment on uh, the programme uh, today, well, why not give us a call? Our telephone number is 0419832000. Tell us what you'd like to say and we'll pass it on. Or indeed, if you want to come on and say it yourself, you're more than welcome for that matter. 0419832000, as I say, is our telephone number if you want to ring us. You can also text us or WhatsApp us on 0861800658. That's 086-1800-658 if you want to text us, email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, we're going to have, uh, I think, uh, many conversations about two referendums that will be held on the 8th of March. Uh, and this is, of course, uh, to do with uh, the role of uh, women in the home. Uh, and indeed, uh, then there's going to be a second referendum. And a, a lot of the discussion is going to centre around the family and what is a family and how do you define a family and it has been suggested recently uh, by Michael McDool, a former Attorney General, that as a result of this perhaps we could end up recognising polygamous relationships in other words, uh, people who have more than one spouse, two wives three wives, ten wives or maybe four husbands, or half a dozen husbands, as the case may be. So what is a, a family? And will that be the result of the referendum? As I say, that is the discussion, it seems, that's going to take place, or it's one of the areas that will come up, or issues that will come up as a result of these referendums. The government is saying, no, that that won't be the case. The referendum won't result in all of that. But let's hear how this played out in the Dáil earlier this week. So can I just ask that durable will mean durable unless the durable relationship is a polygamous one, in which case it's durable, but we're not going to recognise it because we don't like its durability? I mean, I, I simply do not understand where you say a durable, which durable relationships will be recognised and which ones will not be. Because, I mean, are we saying durable but not polygamous? Because if that's what we're saying, that's not in what we're voting for. Are we saying all durable relationships? Because that's what we are voting for. And all durable relationships will have to, by definition, include both polygamous and and monogamous durable relationships. I I, I don't see how it could possibly be interpreted otherwise. 
but we're not just using the term durable deputy because we also use the other language within Article 41 because the family following the amendment we're uh, proposing still has to be a natural and fundamental unit group of society and still has to be a moral institution. Are we saying that some marriages are moral institutions and some aren't. Those that are monogamous are. Those that are polygamous aren't, even though they are, of course, moral institutions in other countries protected by... Established law against, you know, criminal laws also against bigamy and polygamy. So, I mean, presumably that is also going to be part of this. I, I have to say, I, I don't think there's any reality to Deputy McNamara's points, if I may say, because, because we have such established law already. Should How could be... it be a moral unit that's based on a relationship that's, that's illegal in Irish law elsewhere? I mean, we had homosexual relationships which were moral institutions but they were illegal in Irish law and they were struck down and that's not I mean just because something is we changed the Constitution but before we changed to the Constitution the, um, uh, the, the the laws were changed and and we had um, the um, Norris case in the Irish Supreme Court and in the uh, European Court of Human Rights. So just because something is not envisaged at a particular time doesn't mean that when you change the constitution, you change the meaning of the institutions. And I, I, I'm still trying to understand how, how you can, you've said you want to expand the protections, the families, the, 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 the relationships that are protected, that can avail of the shield of the family. You want to expand them. And I don't have a problem with that. Okay. But what I want to understand from you, Minister, is where you see the limit of the relationships that will enjoy this, will, the, the relationships which don't currently enjoy the shield of the family, but will enjoy the shield of the family after these amendments are made, if they are made. What I see, and, and the, the very clear government policy intention here in terms of what's protected, is relationships that are durable, but relationships that are also fundamental unit groups of society and moral institutions, like, like um, uh, a, a, a one-parent family, like a cohabiting couple, whether or not they have children. Those are the relationships we seek to, to include within, uh, to, to, to within this broadened concept of the Constitution. All right, that's uh, an extract of uh, some of uh, that debate from uh, the Dáil earlier this week. And I, I think uh, we're in for an interesting and quite possibly a bitter referendum campaign. The people you were listening to there was Independent ED, Michael McNamara. We also heard uh, from the Minister for Integration, Roderick O'Gorman, who was speaking a second ago. And we also heard from uh, the leader of the Labour Party, Ivana Bacic. Now to some of the comments coming to us. Betty Daly texting us this morning saying, Good morning, Michael. The people who are anti-everything should lose their jobs if they're caught. And we all know some of them have very good careers but haven't an ounce of decency and they must have mental health issues. Thank you indeed, Betty, for that. Our phone number is 041 983 Just to remind you, our text WhatsApp number 86 658 Email michael at lmfm.ie and a couple of emails that came to us uh, from Jerry Floyd, first of all. He says, I, I don't know if it is you or the bishop uh, who is showing ignorance of religious tradition or law regarding the birth of Jesus and to the stable. Why are so many Ukrainian males arriving here having deserted their country in its hour of need? They cannot go back, says Jerry Floyd. Thank you indeed, Jerry. I'll uh, 
pass on your religious uh, teachings uh, to the bishop and, you know, you're wrong about the amount of Ukrainian males coming here. Three quarters of the Ukrainians who come here are women and children. Um, so I don't think that that argument stands up for a second. Uh, we'd uh, uh, another man in Drogheda, this fellow called Paul Keegan, emailing overnight uh, saying he was listening to the show yesterday and felt he had to comment on uh, the topic of mass immigration. Mass immigration in Ireland. One of the comments that was read out compared Michael Reid to Hitler. I, I believe it would be more apt to compare him to Lord Ha Ha. After all, he's a biased propagandist, just like Lord Ha Ha was for the Nazis. And how could he please and could he please stop spreading false information if he took the time to read the latest Red Sea poll uh, of course it's spelled wrong SEA uh, the latest Red Sea poll uh, whereby 75% of respondents felt Ireland had taken in too many asylum seekers not the tiny amount he keeps on stating if there is a tiny minority it's uh, the people that agree with the bias one-sided spiel that Michael Reid propagates on his radio show. As I say, that's from Paul Keegan in Drogheda. Well, thank you indeed, Paul, for your email to the programme. Michael at lmfm.ie is the email address. Uh, And this relates back to the conversation that we were having yesterday. I think people don't like to hear the facts, but the facts are the facts. Uh, And I think that's why uh, Independent Councillor in County Mayo hung up on it as yesterday because uh, the, the facts don't suit the story. Sometimes people make up the facts to suit the story, but the facts are the facts and you can't argue with the facts. Uh, and last year, uh, if you exclude Ukrainians, 13,227 people arrived in this country from every corner of the world while 21,000 Irish people left for Australia alone without going back over all of that. As I said earlier on, three quarters of the people from Ukraine, and if we talk about the Ukrainians who arrive here, three quarters of them are women and children and a third of the Ukrainians are, I beg your pardon, 25% I think of Ukrainians are now working in this country. Uh, And here's the facts um, from uh, the Secretary-General at the Department of Social Protection, John McKeown, who was speaking to an Oireachtas committee yesterday. During the year, the Department continued during 2023 to devote significant energy, time and resources in response to the Ukrainian crisis and inflationary pressures. For example, staff from the Department continued with our colleagues in other departments to provide integrated reception services to people fleeing the war in Ukraine. To date, we've issued about 103,000 PPSNs, 75% of which are to women and children. We estimate that about 80,000 of these people remain in the country. We also processed about 60,000 claims for income supports and developed and implemented a new scheme, the Accommodation Recognition Payment, which is now being availed of by over 8,000 families hosting 17,000 Ukrainian refugees. We also offered employment and support services to Ukrainian adults, of which about 35,000 attended nearly 70,000 one-to-one engagement with our case officers. 8,500 Ukrainian refugees are also being supported by our employment service partners, with a further 8,000 referred to programmes such as community employment, back to education and TUS. 
Revenue records indicate that about 17,000 of the adult Ukrainian refugees are now in employment. That's a lot of people in employment doing jobs that Irish people, I'm sure, just wouldn't do, whether it's cleaning or waiting or delivering, as the case may be. And isn't it a much better and diverse country for it all? 0419832000. If you want to come and text or WhatsApp 086 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. 27 countries uh, that make up uh, the European Union have failed to, to agree on, on what it means to rape another person. This means uh, that the first ever piece of EU legislation aimed at protecting women, the first ever directive on violence against women and violence will not include the crime of rape. Let's speak to Rachel Murrow, Chief Executive of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. A very good morning to you, Rachel, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, This beggar's belief, really, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And when you describe it there, Michael, it just sounds so ridiculous that the European Union, the Council of the European Union, which is made up of the heads of state of the the countries that you mentioned, it could not come to agreement on whether rape should or shouldn't be included in this directive. It's hard to imagine that there's a directive aimed at um, reducing and combating violence against women that does not include rape. So the situation is at the moment that this directive got through the Parliament, it got through the Commission, and then when it got to the Council of the EU, they could not find agreement on exactly what you said. What is the definition of rape? And in Ireland, we have a consent-based definition of rape, but not every member state wanted to sign up to that. So the Irish MEPs were working really hard to get agreement um, amongst other counterparts, but could only reach agreement with 15 member states. And that's only 65% mm-hmm. of the union. The Irish bar... France or Germany. The Irish bar, uh, I think, is probably as high as it can go, but far too high for some European countries. Uh, and I'd have thought that that probably would have related to some of uh, the more regressive countries, if you like, Hungary being the obvious example. Uh, but uh, it's not the case. Uh, it's not just Hungary who are a problem in this. Germany and France... Uh, don't define rape the same way Irish legislation does. That's right. Um, there are countries who, where there are different definitions of rape. So there were 15 countries um, that backed the definition that Ireland um, has here. But some member states, including Ireland, expressed concern that it could be open to a le- legal challenge. So Irish law around rape is already, like I said, based on a person um, not giving consent. And it was hoped that the directive could harmonise rules across the EU so that there would be a common minimum standard that all citizens of the EU um, could enjoy. And we in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, we feel that like women have really been let down in Europe um, by not including this definition of rape. Um, we feel that we can't have a situation where there are different minimum standards of justice um, that, that women can enjoy across the EU. But we're in the situation now um, where some members of the European Parliament are really disappointed um, mm. by the, the outcome 
Um, and I heard Francis Fitzgerald say yesterday that some groups are so outraged um, that it's not included um, that they're not clear as to whether they're going to support the directive now. And the directive does have good things in. So the Dublin mm. Rape Crisis Centre will be backing the, the, the progression of the directive. Okay. But we are really mm. bitterly disappointed about this. I'm sure. Uh, and I'm sure some listeners are, are confused. Uh, Rachel, it's a question of force, isn't it? This is where the difference lies in uh, the definitions uh, in some countries you have to be forcibly raised, uh, raped whereas here uh, you have to give consent if you don't it is rape That's right um, so again the, the Parliament and the Commission they both backed the, the um, definition that you described there Michael um, but the legal service of the European Council um, questioned whether there was a legal basis for this offence uh, rape um, if and if the EU had competence to act in this area or should it be left to member states individually and based on that legal advice um, it seems to have made um, some member states concerned mm. but you mentioned in your introduction Michael about kind of the cultural dimension as well I would agree with you that there absolutely is a cultural dimension to this and I believe that this was a political decision um, by some member states um, not to back this rape law. Mm. I um, I think it's very disappointing uh, generally for women across Europe, uh, but it, it raises a concern uh, about an issue that I hadn't been aware of before and how in what you would consider to be very progressive countries like France and Germany, women are also being let down uh, because I'm sure that there's many women who will tell you um, that, uh, and you would know better than anybody, Rachel, the circumstances of an assault like that uh, and how they've reacted. Uh, and sometimes women will tell you that their bodies let them down, they feel ashamed of that, or that they uh, didn't try to fight off their uh, attacker. Uh, but regardless of all that, uh, they know that they were raped. Mm. Yeah, it sends a really clear signal to to victims and survivors across Europe that rape is not a political priority, Michael. We hear all the time on the National Rape Crisis Helpline, um, people start, the first thing they say to us um, is, I'm not sure I'm onto the right place, or I'm not really sure what to say next, or I'm not sure what just happened. And it breaks my heart, Michael, that they are asking that question. They know, like you said, what has happened to them. Um, and this decision, this political decision that's been made in Europe, um, it's sending a really chilling message um, to anybody who has experienced sexual violence. And like you said, it lets down women and men right across the EU. And it's not just, you know, we have the protection of consent-based laws in Ireland, but there were plenty of Irish people, I'm sure you know many yourself, who are living in France, Germany, other countries across the EU um, and every citizen in the EU, whether they're Irish or not, deserves the protection of a consent-based rape law. Um, and like I said, we are really disappointed um, about the decision that was made in the EU, Michael. Okay, and uh, we'll conclude uh, by reading out uh, your telephone number, your national 24-hour helpline, which is one eight hundred seventy-seven eighty-eight eighty-eight. That's one eight hundred seventy-seven eighty-eight eighty-eight. Completely 
confidential, 24 hours a day, free to call. Uh, and uh, there are many other services uh, that the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre offers through uh, the website uh, as well. Rachel, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Rachel Morrow is the Chief Executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. It's time for another election in Northern Ireland. Uh, the latest legal deadline has uh, passed for restoring the power sharing institutions and uh, now there is a legal obligation on the Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris uh, to call that uh, election. Let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on foreign affairs, Matt Carthy, who's on uh, the line. A very good morning to you, Matt. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I suppose uh, Chris Heaton-Harris ignored those deadlines in the past. What do you think will happen this time round? Well, I know what I would like to happen, as you've outlined. I think, I think it has to be put up to the DUP at this stage, and therefore, I think elections are necessary because it seems clear at this stage that the DUP are intent on refusing to respect the democratic outcome of elections that took place in 2022. We know that Michelle O'Neill remains ready to serve as a first minister for all the people of the North. Her message in the Assembly Chamber when it was recalled this week was very clear. We want the DUP still to join with us to work with all other parties to get the executive round the table mm. and start to make a difference to people's lives. Um, what I suspect uh, Chris Eaton-Harris will do is actually extend probably for a lengthy period of time the, the deadline, put in place a new deadline, mm. and in many respects that will just... Um, provide cover for the DUP to continue to procrastinate. And do you think that procrastination is as a result of what Michelle O'Neill says is an unwillingness to serve under a Sinn Féin First Minister? Well, we've heard for over two years now that the DUP's basis and their stated basis of their boycott is opposition to the Brexit protocol and to the withdrawal agreement. Um, But we also know that negotiations in that respect are over. They've been over for several months now. There are going to be no changes um, to that. In fact, the only potential mechanism to um, change or to amend any of the provisions of that is through a working assembly. And therefore, I think the only explanation that remains, and I think it's what many people have suspected over the past two years, is that the DUP boycott is actually a refusal to accept and tolerate the notion of a nationalist first minister leading that that executive, despite the fact, as as we know, the, the position and the office of first and deputy first minister is a a shared one Um, but I think the very fact that Michelle O'Neill has been elected into that position, the very fact that Sinn Féin has now been the largest party across two consecutive elections, the very fact that unionism has lost its majority I think over six consecutive elections at this at this point points to a, a changing political landscape it points to the fact that progressive change is coming and i think rather than trying to accept and 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 shape that change the dup are putting their heads in the sand trying to frustrate and delay it as opposed to stop it because i think they know it can't be stopped and all the while they're doing a huge disservice to all the people of the north and particularly their own voters yeah, well, they are stopping it, and I, I don't think there's much option in terms of changing that as things stand. As things stand, 
what difference would elections make? It, it would probably uh, result in Sinn Féin being the largest party. Uh, that would mean that there should be a Sinn Féin first minister and it would also mean that the DUP wouldn't take their seat. So what's the point? Well, and, and in fairness, that is uh, a valid a valid point. But the difficulty is that there are mechanisms in, in place, there are rules being put in place, and the DUP are blatantly ignoring and breaching those rules. We saw yesterday workers across the night, the, the north from the public service uh, bringing, the, bringing the six counties essentially to a standstill simply because they're looking to get... Um, the pay rise that they're entitled to and de- deserve, and essentially public sector workers are being punished for DUP failures. Um, 170,000 workers were um, forced on to take unavoidable um, um, general strike action as they would see it. So mm. just to, to put into context, and, and because people I, I may not have, have noticed that, what that meant was that doctors, nurses, mm. all civil servants virtually, train drivers, bus drivers, teachers, you know, police um, support staff, you know, essentially the entire public administration and um, was brought to a standstill because yeah. people were looking for now in the first instance the British government should just um, release the funds that are necessary to pay them but secondly all of those public services that I've outlined are under huge strain mm. as a result of the fact that there isn't a functioning executive the decisions that are being made that affect their their ability to do their job are being made in Westminster by people who have no notion of the lived realities on the ground. And in some instances, those decisions aren't being made. So, yes, the elections have to be part of the considerations, but what I... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Pink now needs to happen is um, very much a proactive position and on the part of the Irish government as well mm. because this British government in particular I think have sidelined the, the government in Dublin to some extent. I think it's crucially important that, um, that, that, that our own government doesn't allow itself to be sidelined anymore, it takes a much more proactive um, role in terms of in, in terms of the North and providing representation that's clearly not coming from either the DUP or the British go- government. And of okay. course we know 
that the failure to establish an executive will mean that more and more people will be asking questions arguably quicker than they might otherwise have done as to what their future actually uh, actually holds and, and what, what is the best way of delivering the public services that they deserve into the future. And they'll be looking yeah. at the, a, a, an all-Ireland framework in, 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 okay. in, as a mechanism to do that. OK, come back to that in a moment. Uh, but what else should happen? Because e- even if the Irish government was involved in the way that you've explained there, that wouldn't necessarily result in the formation of an executive. It wasn't just public sector workers who weren't at work yesterday. I'm sure there were many people in the private sector who didn't go to work because the roads sure. weren't gritted in sub-zero temperatures. And I see Eamon McCann today is suggesting that civil disobedience might be necessary. Well, I don't think we've come to that point, to be quite quite frank, because... No, ne- you know, we, neither we, does Eamon McCann, but he, he says we've got to a point where we should talk a, a about it and start preparing, because this can't go on forevermore. No, and so so in the in the first instance, what we, we know the people want to see happening. They want to see the executive up and running, a vast, vast majority of people. Accept the Brexit protocols that are in place, accept the fact that Michelle O'Neill has been elected as the first, uh, first minister-designate, and accept the, the, the lived reality that a uh, functioning regional executive and an assembly is best placed to actually deliver for the North in the time ahead. Mm. If that doesn't happen, if the DUP continued to refuse to allow for the establishment of an assembly and executive, well then other options are on the table and I don't think that involves ordinary people having to do the heavy lifting. There are two governments that are co-signatures to the Good Friday Agreement. It is their responsibility to ensure in the first instance that the, that the and that the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement are functional and mm. if they're not, to put in place alternatives that actually de- right. deliver. And what that clearly means is that there has to be a role for the Irish government in the short term okay. in terms of delivering for communities in the north and spell the it, Spell it out for us, though, if you would for the them. Irish government to actually set out a medium to long-term strategy to okay. provide a viable alternative to the uh, how, situation. How do you form a, a government in Northern Ireland without the DUP? Well, the Good Friday Agreement is very clear. You can't. And that is the that is the the difficulty. And yeah. my my view of it is is that the DUP will not at this point, and they seem completely unwilling to accept the democratic mandate unless and until the alternative, as is spelled out, is actually worse from their perspective. Right. And what they would consider worse is for um, a real and genuine role for the Irish government for real collaboration, as the Good Friday Agreement envisaged between both the British and Irish governments who are both co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. So so you're not, sorry, just to understand, you're not suggesting that a government be formed without the DUP? Not at this point, no. Because but the you're suggesting it should be... It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't allow for it. But instead, the DUP, instead of British rule, that there'd be joint administration, that it'd be uh, Irish-British rule. No, well, what? Um, unfortunately, we have British rule in part of yeah. our, our, co- our country. There is, though, very clearly a role for the Irish government, and I think they need to take that role seriously. I think the British government need to return to the partnership approach that was previously in place and that has simply been abandoned by this government, mm-hmm. uh, by this British um, Tory government. What we also need to see, though, from an Irish government perspective, is they actually setting out there is an alternative to this stagnation in the, in the north. There is a sti- um, an alternative to the situation 
situation where the North is not um, benefiting from the economic growth that this state is, for example, for all our flaws. Um, and there is an alternative to the constant, uh, the, 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 the constant withdrawal of elected uh, and pol- political representation for the people in the North. And that is, as I say, through an all-Ireland co- um, context. And that is why the conversation around what a united Ireland would look like, why how we can actually accommodate all yeah. of those people who might not necessarily support that position at the, mo- at the moment. And that's not to suggest that that happens next week, next month or even next year. There's a poll the in the Irish Times, I'm sure you've now. seen. I'm sorry to cut across to you. There's a poll in the Irish Times today, which I, I'm sure you've seen, uh, which would uh, imply that if we were to rejoin the Commonwealth, you may get support in the North uh, for reuniting Ireland. Uh, Is that something that you would consider? Well, it's not something I would support, but I understand that when we get to the point of um, of reunifying our, con- our country, that everything isn't going to be exactly as I would per- perhaps prefer. What I want to see is a united Ireland because I believe it will be a better Ireland and a fairer Ireland and a more prosperous Ireland for all the people who share here. I think we have um, a, a very solid economic, political, obviously geographical rationale for Irish unity. And what I want to see is having the conversations and the planning to put in place. What does it take in order to persuade those people who currently don't support the United Ireland? And, I, and my own instinct is that they will be more concerned and asking more questions in respect of the economy, the health services, public services generally, mm. and their own um, British identity for those who that applies to them and yeah. how that will be protected uh, in the United that- Ireland, as opposed to our membership of you know, an organisation that, frankly, I don't see you know, providing much use um, or, or value to, to Ireland. But as I say, that's a conversation and that if people want to have, I'm willing to have with them. I have a, a starting position in terms of my own opinion, but I'm not going to allow that starting position to be a block to actually having those conversations. Right. Um, so under a Sinn Féin government, North and South, um, there's the possibility of rejoining the, co- the Commonwealth. No, what I'm saying is I would oppose such a move. Personally, you said, but you said you're open to the conversation. What I'm saying is we wouldn't dictate, we wouldn't dictate and will not dictate the parameters of conversations that will take place. Um, And therefore, what I do think is more important is that we actually set out the framework for how we deal with the economic challenges, the challenges in terms of public um, um, services, the challenges in terms of delivering an all-Ireland healthcare system, because I believe those challenges can be very quickly turned into great opportunities for all the people of our country, particularly for those in the six counties, for those in the border region of this state. But I believe the entire island of Ireland will be a better country when we're united, when we're operating on in a cohesive, united um, um, basis, because we're too small of a country, to be quite frank about it, to have two of everything as we currently do. And I think there is where our priorities lie. If others have other priorities, then they're welcome to bring them to the discussion table. And what I am saying is we are not going to um, negate or prevent any conversation that people want to have because we believe that this is a debate that everybody has to be involved in. Okay. Uh, Am I right uh, to interpret everything you have said up to this point uh, to mean that there will be no return to government in Northern Ireland for some time to come? That's my fear. That's where the current position of the DUP would lead us to. I hope, and I still hope, uh, that the DUP change course. And um, there's 
you know, soundings, but those soundings, quite frankly, have been coming for the past number of months that perhaps there are some within the DUP leadership that are contemplating that move. I hope that, and that there's some basis to it, but I have to say the opportunities of the last month were there for the DUP to enter. The rationale is absolutely indisputable in in my view and therefore it appears to me that the DUP have put their resistance to sharing power under a first minister repre- that comes from the nationalist community ahead of the interests of mm. the people that they're purporting to represent. Okay, uh, Paddy Duffy taxing is saying there should be no assembly elections in the north until and after the mandate of uh, the last election is honoured by the DUP. Uh, given uh, the DUP's position and that it will not take up its seats, should the pay of DUP MLAs not be cut? Well, the pay of all MLAs has been has been cut. cut. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... And and I've heard and I've heard reference to to others being cut, um, um, to, to, to other proposals to to cut that. Um, for the, well, all the, I can the say pay, pay, pay has been reduced, but should it not be cut altogether for people? Uh, in this case, it happens to be the DUP, but for, for anybody who won't take up the seats that they've been elected to. Well, I would have no opposition to that move, but I would have an opposition um, to the the fact that there is any inference that is it, is it acceptable at all for financial or other reasons for people to actually not do their job, and that's what the DUP are currently doing when there is no rational basis for that position. Mm, okay, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Thank you, uh, as always. Uh, that's uh, Sinn Fein spokesperson on foreign affairs, Matt Carthy, who's a TD for Cavan Monaghan. Do you want to comment on our program today? Uh, if you do, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call. 041-983-2000 is the telephone number. Text or WhatsApp 86 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, let's uh, tune in to Dáil Éireann once again and a very important local issue uh, that has been raised. The mine has been suspended since July of last year and the prospects of reopening remain uncertain. Where the unions are not ruling out industrial action, the management released plans to the media without first consulting with the unions or the workers. SIPTA has accused the company of trying to rip up negotiated agreements under a new rescue plan. Unite, one of the unions representing the workers at Tara Mines, have detailed the challenges faced by the workers and broader implications for the local economy. Immediate action is necessary to safeguard the livelihoods of the workers and to secure the future of Tara Mines. The concerns that have been outlined by the unions highlight the need for government intervention to ensure that the highly skilled jobs at Tara Mines are preserved and that the terms and conditions of the workers are maintained. Can I ask that the government talk to all relevant stakeholders to make any supports provided contingent on Tara Mines committing to an early and firm reopening date whilst maintaining the terms and conditions of the workers, including any voluntary redundancy package? Workers will tell you that there was better terms and conditions offered 30 years ago. Thanks for raising uh, this really important issue and government is committed to providing all possible assistance uh, to facilitate a resumption of operations at Tara Mines. And this is a matter that's been raised directly at government level by Minister Thomas Byrne as well and Senator Shane Castles. As you'll know, Enterprise Ireland are liaising with the company and energy and productivity supports that can assist with the sustainable reopening. Minister Coveney and officials from his department will continue and I can assure you are engaged closely with both managements and unions to support ongoing efforts to achieve the accelerated resumption of operations. I have read also in relation to concerns of workers about uh, potential pay freezes and that. Government are committed. These are very strategically very important uh, jobs uh, for, for 
our country, uh, skilled workers that are there. And my colleague, Minister Coveney, has had a number of meetings with the, uh, with the Bollenden Group management and with trade unions representing workers to discuss the issues that impact on the potential reopening. That will continue. That's uh, Dara O'Brien. Uh, the Minister didn't have much in the way of an update uh, for the workers uh, laid off, but he, he was responding to local Sinn Féin TD. Johnny Gurk there. Now, uh, a text uh, message uh, that comes to us from Mick and Kells, who says, don't mind what the public say. Keep up the good work, uh, Michael. I listen to your programme every day. Uh, thanks, Mick and Kells. I, I guess we've been hearing from um, some people who've taken exception to the idea that uh, you would offer a place of sanctuary to people uh, at their time of need. Uh, they're not reflective of uh, the public, I don't think, Mick. I think they're reflective of a very small minority of very, very vocal, bitter people who, for some reason, um, don't want to um, be charitable, don't want people to come here to... Um, better themselves or to save themselves or whatever the case may be in their time of need. Let's hope that none of the people, and I really mean this, I I hope that uh, none of uh, the people uh, who are anti-immigrant are in a time of need to that extent themselves uh, in the future. Um, Somebody uh, along those lines texting, saying, Michael, you said yourself that you believe the Gardaí on this without getting the facts checked. Are, are you forgetting what they did to one of their own, Morris McCabe? You're a disgrace to the North East and you should be immediately taken off the air. All right, would you be happy if I said you won the argument? Uh, uh, would you be happy if uh, I, I said, well, yeah, we should uh, treat people terribly uh, because um, they've been born somewhere else, because uh, they have... Uh, these terrible things um, going on that has forced them to leave the place they were born in, uh, the people that they grew up with, um, their culture, their language, all of the things that uh, they're leaving behind coming here uh, in so many circumstances with nothing but uh, a shirt on their back. Um, I I don't know if that is the case uh, as uh, we were making the point yesterday very very different than the Irish going abroad these days Uh, you know when the Irish go to Australia many people texting yesterday saying they go over there with thousands of euro (laughs) it's great isn't it to think that we live in a country where you can go abroad with thousands of euro uh, and um, then set up uh, a life for yourself uh, and people aren't outside saying get out, Perth is full, Sydney is full, and they welcome you and they give you jobs and then you better yourself further. It's called opportunity. That's what happens to the Irish when they go abroad. Last year, more than 21,000 Irish citizens were granted Australian working holiday visas. This was the highest recorded figure in 16 years. Even during the 2008 crash, just 12,847 visas for Australia were issued. So a figure of 21,000 last year, when we have full employment in this country, is extraordinary. And it's something we should be talking about in this house, because clearly it is no country for young people, and those young people are now voting with their feet. Many of them don't want to leave, but they feel they have no other choice if they don't want to spend their entire 20s and 30s, even into their 40s, uh, living in their childhood bedrooms, while their life is passing them by. 
Minister, increasingly people just have no hope for their housing prospects in Ireland. Rents have doubled in the past decade. Young people simply cannot afford them. And record house prices means dreams of home ownership are long gone. Minister, housing is more than an investment vehicle. It's about more than bricks and mortar. It's about independence. It's about security. It's about relationships. It's about starting a family. It's the foundation for so much that is central to a happy life. But that foundation is missing now for an entire generation. Minister, how do you think that it feels for those people and for their parents when your approach is tried, tested, and it has failed, and you consistently just come in here in a state of denial, making promises that are later broken, setting targets that aren't met. We've now heard promises for years that things will get better. And then simultaneously, we see things like the reports that an investment fund bought up 85% of the homes in Dublin in a housing estate. Just the latest example that things aren't changing. The flippant attitude of you and your government towards this speaks volumes. <coughs> government TDs have spent the last week downplaying it. You just did the same there. But the fact that you haven't bothered to close such a gaping loophole tells us all we need to know about where your priorities lie. And it's not with vulnerable renters or struggling first-time buyers who obviously cannot compete with 800 million euro funds that are cashing in on a crisis. Those 46 homes in Dublin are now on the rental market for €3,125 per month. That's rent of 37500 a year. This is why 21,000 young people left this country to go to Australia last year. This is why it's obvious to everyone that your approach isn't working. This is why people have run out of hope. That's the leader of uh, the Social Democrats, Holly Kearns, claiming that failed government housing policy is forcing young people to emigrate. Firstly, just reject your assertion that in any way, shape or form we deal with housing in a flippant way. We certainly do not. We're very serious about it. This government's investing more than any previous government has in housing. Uh, we brought forward measures to help in housing. Uh, what I'd say to you as well, that whilst people do travel, uh, and in Australia, if you've read about the housing situation in Australia and the cost of housing and the cost of rents in Australia, it's far worse than here. And the response there from the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing on LMFM's news this morning, victims of child sexual abuse are calling on uh, the Chief Executive of Louth County Council, Joan Marden, to resign. Their spokesperson is Dublin City Councillor Damien O'Farrell, who joins us once again this morning. Damien, good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, you're taking this, we've talked about it over and over, and you're, you're taking this, it seems, to... Uh, another level altogether today. Why is it that you are now calling on the CEO to step down? Thank you, Michael. Uh, well, I, well, I suppose in a nutshell, the CEO, uh, Joan Martin, the CEO of Loud County Council, she's an unelected person. Okay, She's unelected and she took actions that were outside of her authority under legislation. That's the Local Government Act, the Local Government Reform Act 2014. It's section 47 and it details the roles of the chief executive for a reserve function. This was a reserve function. It's reserved for councillors, reserved for elected people. She's not elected. 
And we believe, we know, her actions deprive victims of their rights and also of their power, and it re-victimised them. And I'd like to put this into sort of a historical context and, and, and reveal, I suppose, the significance of her, of her actions on them. So these, these men as children, um, and, and they were all sexually abused, raped and tortured, and their power and control was taken from them. They were manipulated, and this is affecting them today. So then as men then, they, that was children, as men then, they, they took cases against the Christian brothers. And through the litigation strategy, um, which is very obstructive, and was a choice made by Brother Garvey, there's, there's further control and power and manipulation being put upon them uh, through the legal system. And then they went to the local authority for support. And when the, when the local authority should have been supporting them, instead of supporting them, they felt the total opposite. They felt unwelcome. I detailed how, um, how the CEO threatened to throw them out of the meeting. and um, There's no welcome. The, the victims feel that they are the problem. They are being re-victimised. And rights were taken for them for being on that agenda. And I'll come to the technical side in a minute. You know, but the very, very, very bare minimum they require is, that, is, is support from state structures and public reps, full support. And on Taoiseach, as I mentioned before, gave a state apology to these men in 2019 and said that they won't be failed on a third occasion. occasion and they believe that Lyle County Council failed them on that third occasion. So victims listened to the chair, um, the chair of Loud County Council, Councillor Caller Call Buttery the other day, and it was clear to them that they were just being told to move on, move on, nothing to see here, move on, it's over, this was dealt with. And that is, it's, it's not the case, you know. And I would like to go on to the technical issues. We had a key to the door of, of um, Loud County Council, and, our, and that key was an elected person out of all the the councillors in Loud, one councillor at was prepared to put an agenda on the motion. So she was our key to that agenda. And she put the, she put the uh, well, she tried to put the, 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 the motion onto the agenda. And I'm listening now, I'm going to, I'm going to call out a minute, the minutes of a minute, the corporate policy, the chairperson mentioned the corporate policy group meeting. And I'm, I'm going to read out minutes and it's, it's under withdrawal of a motion. On this matter, the CE noted the unhappiness of the Caherlock Counter Connor, Count, Councillor Connor Keelan and his disagreement with her decision. So the CE noted the unhappiness of the Caherlock Councillor Connor Keelan and his disagreement with her decision. And she is unelected and she's not entitled to make that decision. There's also no minuted um, advice and assistance to the council on any of the previous council meetings leading up, leading up to that decision. And, and it's only a council meeting. That's when the council sits. And that's under, again, that's covered under the legislation, Local Government Reform Act. And it was noted on the main minutes that a motion was removed. So the former Kerherlock um, has come onto your show. That's Kevin, that's Connor Keelan. He's come onto your show on several occasions. And, and he said he wasn't consulted. He didn't agree with the decision. He actually wanted the motion to go on. He is the reserved person. He is the elected person. And this was contrary to legal advice. It was also done contrary to legal advice to consult the chair. And then in September, when it was finally passed at Drogheda Borough Council, the, the, the CEO said, now this is in the presence of RTE, that while she had given her advice, ultimately it was a matter for the members. So in September, it was a matter for the members. That is the correct position. But last May, she took the motion off the claw, her decision. And she had no right to do that, we believe. And nobody is interested in discussing that. Like the council had a meeting there earlier in the week mm. and we felt that they'd be asked. And, and it's coming back now. Conor Keelan on your show again told us nobody asked the question at all. 
they were talking about the, uh, the the freedom of information, which is fair enough because there was breaches of the law there. But no one asked the question about the Section 47 of the Local Government Act. And I, and I look, this isn't a surprise to the CEO. She she was expecting this, I'm sure. And I think she probably thought that it would be raised by one of the councillors um, on Monday. And I'd say she was ready for it, but but she didn't. And this is an unprecedented situation now in the country that we have a CEO basically on one side and the people, the members that are that are bringing her to account because that's how the local government work, act works. It's, it's, and it's a it's a tri-party between the public, it's between councillors and it's between uh, the officials. And the public had a right through Mayfior to put an, a motion on that agenda. And the motion that we're talking about wasn't defamatory. And, and it was eventually heard in September. It wasn't defamatory. It wasn't defaming anybody. It was, it was a factual motion. And there's no legal advice. The, the CEO talks about legal advice. There's no legal advice existing ad- advising the CE to disregard the, the Local Government Act. And councillors are foolish if they think, that, think that if, if they think this is the case. And, and, and as I said, the CEA knows all this, and she's aware. And I believe she knows that she um, that she stepped over her powers, that she, that she did too much, and she needs really to make a statement. But she's not making a statement. No one's talking about it. And as I said, the chair the other day, uh, councillor Callabutter is asking us to move on. So the victims just felt that this just wasn't right. They're fed up. But back in the, like this legal advice that, that nobody will show, it's po- it's possibly verbal legal advice. And we, we've had some documentation um, that mentions verbal legal advice. And this is what the church did back in the 80s and the 90s. And, and at one point, uh, Cardinal O'Connell came on and he apologised to all the victims for, for looking to the lawyers when common sense, like, you know, should have availed. There was nothing wrong with our motion and, it, and we were deprived. And it's an example, I think, that's... Uh, to people around the country and, and, and all the victims. And look, I don't want to be coming. How many times I've been on your programme trying to explain this? We looked for a hearing from the councillors in October 22. And from, from I think Christmas on, we were just ignored. And then a primetime programme looked at the litigation strategy. And then we were ignored again. Eventually, councillors, just a few councillors started listening to us. Just And then the likes of Kevin Callan, he's still... Um, he was talking about a kangaroo court, and I think we got a kangaroo decision um, last May. And he's talking about kangaroo, and he did nothing again uh, for us last month. He wouldn't ask a question; uh, yeah. just just supporting her hundred percent. And also, and, and I stopped talking now, Michael. I'm okay, sorry. Yeah, no, I just was just reminding. Sorry, Michael. Just just like you're getting statements as well from the from the council, basically saying that all the procedures were followed and everything, but that's not the case. That's not the case. And some of the, I'm sure some of those communi- people in the communications must be embarrassed by all this as well. Sorry, Mike. Uh, no, 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 not, not at all. Um, you just reminded me uh, of Cardinal Connell um, when the church uh, lied and lied and lied a- again to cover up uh, its improper response to some of the most serious crimes that could ever take place, as you know, and the people you represent know, which is sexual abuse of children. Uh, And when he was caught out, he said, no, I wasn't lying. That was mental reservation, Uh, a term that nobody outside of the church used, but it meant that you were telling the truth in your head, but you didn't say it out loud. And that meant it wasn't a lie somehow, some sort of... uh, perverse way uh, of covering up uh, and uh, I, I don't know if anything like that uh, applies to this but it, it just reminded me the way uh, victims have been treated over decades in, in this country and how Ireland has 
let down victims of child sexual abuse time and again. Uh, unfortunately, the chief executive is not with us today. Unfortunately, we don't have a statement on behalf of the chief executive or somebody to represent the chief executive or a statement in respect of her views because we've been stonewalled at this stage. The day of us getting statements from the council, I think, has ended. Uh, but in her absence, uh, I think I have to put it to you that the chief executive said she had been given legal advice and I think people would react to that uh, by saying wouldn't she have been negligent if she had ignored that legal advice? Yeah, she, she possibly has legal advice regarding the wording of the motion. Possibly. Um, I, don't, I don't think it and I don't think it's written down you know we, we've had there is documentation that would say there was verbal legal advice but she possibly has regarding the wording of the motion now eventually that, that motion was carried in, in September there's possibly on the wording but I'm talking about she took the um, she took the motion off the CLAR that's what I'm talking about she took it off the and she deprived the victims of their rights and there is no legal advice no solicitor would write would write down that she can uh, disregard the local government act. People have rights. We had the key to that agenda through Maeve Yaw, and she was disregarded. And the, her, this is a reserve function. It's reserved for councillors, and she's unelected. And it was a reserve for um, Conor Keelan. He's the Carherlock. He uh, he said it was against his it was against his wishes. He wanted it on, and she just takes it off. You just don't do that. It's up to the council mm. to decide. It's a reserve function. She overstepped her authority. She knows she did. She and, knows she did. And, and no- I don't think the councillors know that because I think, I think in fairness to uh, Councillor Butterley, I think she was a bit unprepared and, and the, and the, uh, for your interview. And I think the, the, I think the um, CEO has to take some responsibility for that as well. Okay, and nobody is arguing the point about abuse. Everybody knows and agrees uh, that you were abused by Christian Brothers and the men you you represent were abused by Christian Brothers and the courts uh, have put many of those uh, Christian Brothers in jail uh, as a result of all of this. Uh, And I, I think the sense of hurt that you're relaying to us now from the men you represent uh, was felt, I certainly could feel it coming through so many comments that came to us on the programme yesterday uh, and people undoubtedly do feel let down and are are, are looking for something to change Um, but it's unlikely isn't it that the chief executive is going to resign uh, as you suggest should happen yeah, but councillors have powers. Um, they could convene a special meeting of the Loud County Council. Now, we were talking about this last week, and I thought that was the case, but they decided to, sp- to suspend standing orders. I mean, a councillor actually voted against that, mm. that, that they've even discussed it. Could you imagine? <laughs> like, you know? yeah. And just so, to reiterate so the point as well, that when it, it comes yeah. uh, to believing what you've said, nobody can argue with what you've said about the abuse because that's been proven in court and people have ended up in jail. And that's why the Pope believes you. That's why the Pope gave you an audience uh, to discuss the concerns you have about how the church and others are, are treating victims of child sexual abuse. But any professional in the world of um, sexual abuse, any professional will tell you it's all about power and control and manipulation. 
and we felt the victims feel that we were re-victimised when that when when our rightful place on the agenda was taken from us, and it was taken from us by someone that was unelected. That's so the point. So what you is know? it? What, what is it you want from the from the elected well, members then? Well, for elected members, it's, 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 I don't think this is going to happen now, in it, you know, because I've been trying to do this. I've been trying to make this point for over a year, you know. But to convene a special meeting of Loud County Council, you know, they also have the power to suspend or sack the CEO. I think they should be talking about that as well, you know. They could have last Monday. They could have. They could have asked for independent second legal opinion on whether the CEO was re- was correct to withdraw motion. Except they just take the, mo- the CEO's word for it. They don't, they, they don't do that. They don't want to do that. And they could also um, get legal advice from, from the same council, paid for by the council. Um, was she correct in was she correct in um, withholding the advice from them and from the public and from your show? But they don't want to do that. They just want to bury this. And victims are just fed up, being buried away, just being stuck under the mat, and, and just told to move on, move on. And that's basically what they were told yeah. effectively by the chairperson, the elected chairperson, Councillor Paula Butterley of Louth uh, County Council this week on your show. And they, they heard that and they mm. just said no more. They actually wanted to call for her resignation. But I felt, I, I am a councillor myself, and I, and I felt you have to give public reps a chance to do the right thing. I feel she could fairness to her. She did. She was brave enough to come on. Mm. She was brave enough to come on. And she should be given a chance now to to, to, um, to rectify this, these errors that, mm. that they're making. And I just also want to sp- say a special word for um, Councillor Conor Keelan. He's a very experienced councillor and he made sure that it was minuted, his dissatisfaction that was minuted. And that, as I said, it was it was minuted. Um, it was minuted on the Clare. And I'm just going to tell you, um, let me see, Michael, it, it was minuted. Okay, but you're, 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 tr- you're, you're trying to find but the paragraph, I think. That yeah. basically that it was the CE's decision. It was the CE's decision to withdraw the motion. Yeah. Mm. Well, for whatever reason uh, that decision was made, I have to say that I think it's a very unusual situation. I've been doing this job, uh, not just here, but elsewhere for more years than I care to remember, as the phrase goes. And I have never come a- across a, a situation uh, where a local authority or any uh, body in authority would uh, refuse to explain the basis for taking an action of that sort. It's not showing the legal advice, uh, which is protected because of uh, the people giving the advice so that they're not put into the public debate on an issue. But the advice itself or the rational uh, rationale behind the advice is always explained because it, it, it's people's right to know. This is a, a democracy, not an autocracy. Uh, and in a democracy, the media is communicated with, as are the councillors. The councillors have been told legal advice, but not what that advice is. And I think therein lies some of the problem relating to this. Would you agree? Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's very simple. You know, it, it's very simple. Um, councillors, the public deserve to know what we're talking about. And it's looking like, I don't know, like Joan Martin needs to come on to the radio and really talk about this herself in public or make a statement. I don't know if there is advice out there. And I think it could be verbal. And verbal isn't good enough. The lawyer is not prepared to write down 
Sorry, Michael. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm over time at this stage, Damien. I, I yeah. think we have to leave it there at the moment. It's a, a strong position that you've taken today. And thank you indeed for joining us, as always, Dublin City Councillor Damien O'Farrell. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to some of uh, the comments. Uh, somebody says, if uh, the legal advice was paid for by the council, then surely the council owned the advice, not the CEO. If she paid for it personally, then I'd imagine she owns it. Who paid for the advice? Of course, it was paid for by the... Uh, Council, thanks for your message though. Uh, Somebody else in touch with us uh, about this as well saying that Joan Martin um, uh, that the resignation of uh, the CEO doesn't address a fundamental problem that is who decides on policy at Louth County Council, elected members of the council or local civil servants and with that there is the critical question as to how effective democracy is in Louth. Should Joan Martin fail to recognise the seriousness of her undermining of good governance in Louth and resign as per calls of uh, the Christian Brothers survivors, the council must consider whether she remains in post. As a first step, Louth County Council must establish an independent investigation as to why Joan Martin obstructed council members from discussing the Brother Edmund Garby Freedom of Drogheda issue and the investigation should include a review of how elected representatives have mismanaged the Garby dossier. The outcome of the investigation should include an assessment of the competence and capacity of Louth County Council as an elected collective vis-a-vis local government legislation, recommendations for improved governance and management of Louth County Council and its executive and options for dealing with its chief executive, Joan Martin. Louth people deserve better transparency, accountability, good governance and reinforced local democracy. That's according to Tony Gribben of the Dramore Group once Again, thank you very much indeed, uh, as always, Tony, uh, for your comment uh, to the programme. Another message uh, from somebody who refers to an interview that Joan Martin did with uh, the local government information unit in 2023 and all of uh, the groups that uh, the chief executive and the council are working with, other than, they say, victims of child sexual abuse. Now, our caller says Joan Martin doesn't practice what she preaches, her actions to remove our motion unilaterally without consultation with the councillors whilst possibly circumnavigating the law is deplorable and unlawful. She appears to refuse to engage with our victims of sexual abuse although she claims to work with everyone and demonstrates a micromanagement style removing the motion tabled to support victims of historical sexual abuse. Furthermore we had to go to the Information Commissioner to obtain documents under the Freedom of Information Act. They spent four months investigating. I'm not convinced that all documents have been released. We need people with open minds that are willing to change encourage a democratic approach to all issues equally. Progress is impossible without change and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. A quote from George Bernard Shaw finishes our programme. Maggie McGuire Research Chris was in the control tower. I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM for our next programme. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 